Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Jonathan Goldberg joining us now, Chief Equity Strategist at Credit Suisse. I remember the morning at some point in the summertime, I'd taken the morning off and the note dropped from Jonathan Goldberg at Credit Suisse. Had a year-end outlook for next year of 5,000. And Jonathan, many people just shrugged and said, Jonathan Goldberg, here we go again. He's too <laughs> bullish. He's too bullish. And here we are at all-time highs, John. Why do you think we can get to 5K from where we are just north of 4,500? Well, I think there's a couple of stories here. The first one is that earnings benefit from these shortages. And I know that that sounds really bizarre, but they're getting tons of pricing power. And, um, and that's going to mean that the earnings are going are to be driving this. If you look over the last 12 months, the price of the stock market is up less than the, than the earnings have improved. And stock multiples are actually down over the last year. So that's the number one reason. The second thing which people miss is that, and you guys were talking about it a second ago, Rising interest rates is a sign of confidence in the economy, not a problem for stocks. And that's been the story over the last month as interest rates have risen. Jonathan, you've absolutely nailed it. Your earnings sustained call has been great. You've got some great statistics there on how earnings have come in far better than what the gloom was by the sell side. You're as strong as your analysts. Let's take Matthew Cabral as just one example. What is Matthew Cabral on Apple or on tech and your other 47 analysts? What are they whispering to you right now? Oh, you know, I, I, and I hate to talk about individual. Yeah, I get um, that. You know, Go broad. You know, individual stocks. But, you know, we're, we're seeing um, in many ways what the companies are telling us is they're, they're saying that things are pessimistic about their ability to meet demand and they, they're, they're pessimistic on, you know, margin cost pressures. And then the numbers come in and, and the buzz that we're hearing from companies is more negative than the results that they're delivering. And we're seeing yeah. and we're seeing that across the board. And one of the things I'm saying to the analysts is, I know management is telling you that there's going to be this cost squeeze. Don't believe them. It's going to come in better. There's, there's more pricing power than they're willing to tell you in their pre-announcements. Jonathan, I'm looking at the EAGO function on the Bloomberg, which tells you basically how earnings season is stacking up so far. And you're right. The earnings surprise is an average of 13%. On the top line, though, the average sales surprise is only about 2%. So is that just because the bar was higher on the revenue side? Or is that because of some of these supply and demand issues? And you actually are seeing companies not being able to pull in quite as much revenue because they don't have adequate supply. Well, well first of all, there's two stories here. The, the first one is, is that you always have um, really small revenue beats and really big margin beats. I mean, that's um, analysts um, have much more clarity on the revenue line. So that's not, it, that, that's not atypical. But the story this earnings season is that everyone thought that we were going to get cost squeeze. And what we're actually getting is, uh, is demand disappointment. And, you, 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 know, you know, I don't want to comment on an individual company, but um, I was out with a bunch of chief investment officers across different firms a few nights ago. And people were saying that they thought that ad spending was going to be a problem. Why? If you can't meet demand, why would you advertise? Just cut your ad spending. <laughs> and especially in an area like autos, which is so important for the ad market, why would you advertise a car that you can't deliver? So 
This is a big issue when we're seeing it lots of places. I'll tell you where we're not seeing it. We're not seeing it in banks. Um, banks are showing up with, you know, really levitating separate from everything else. And let me just make one more one comment there. If you split the market in half, which is how are the banks doing and how is everything else doing, it doesn't look as good as we're talking about. The market is beating by about 7%. The bank, if you exclude the banks, um, and it's about, you know, 11 or 12% width. So there is a bit of a bifurcation on winners and losers. John, before you go, sometimes a strategist's job is to offer therapy to help people stay invested and sleep well at night. <laughs> Do some therapy right now. What's the one reason people should stay invested in this market through all of next year and beyond? Um, you know, I, I, you know, I actually, I, John, I, my, my therapy is a little bit different. Um, I'm seeing a, and listen, I'm a bullish, you know, I'm bullish about the market and optimistic in general, but I'm seeing almost complacency with people just saying is, just ignore the, ignore any bad news, just buy the dips. The Fed is backing this, everything's going to be okay. And there are things to be concerned about, to worry about. And in many ways, I'm saying to the bullish guys, um, listen, I, I agree with you, but there are, you know, we did roll off of a ton of stimulus here. We don't have clarity on what tax policy is. Yep. You know, oil prices can be disruptive. Just check to make sure that your bullishness is warranted. I think it is, but just, you know, go double check. The bullishness is just very strong. I'll give you a call when I struggle to sleep later. John, thank you. Jonathan Gollub there of Credit Suisse on this equity market. The market was in line with this yep. idea that QE was separate from higher interest rates. You can't say that anymore, Tom, in the same way. That's changed no. in the last couple of months. Let us drive this conversation forward, and we do it with someone really interesting. She is acclaimed for hyper, hyper detailed notes at high-frequency economics, taking all the wonderful granularity of her Stone and McCarthy years. We're thrilled Ruby Faruqi uh, could uh, be with us today, working always with Carl at Weinberg. Rubila, what is in the details right now? If I look at your high-frequency economics domestic note, which is the item that has your greatest attention? Well, uh, good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, what we are looking at is uh, how the consumer is responding to high inflation pressures and what the underlying trend in inflation is. And I think this whole debate around rate hikes and uh, how the central bank is going to respond is centered around these inflation, high inflation readings that are lasting longer than expected and also rising inflation expectations. So uh, I do think that what is being priced in right now is a little aggressive. And I do think that this sets up the path that uh, as we see inflation moderate uh, over the course of 22, right. that these expectations are going to reset and that's going to have implications for uh, the yield curve, well, especially the short end. You're as good as your data. Can you get good data now with the dislocations, say, in the automobile business or the dislocations at the ports on the West Coast, how good is the goodness of the data you and Carl Weinberg have? It, it is definitely challenging right now to figure out what the underlying trends are in consumer spending or, let's say, business investment, given the dislocations we're seeing on the supply side of the economy. But what we do expect is that these disruptions are going to eventually pan out. And what we see beyond that is a slower pace where the impetus from, for demand, which is, you know, is being built into expectations of inflation lasting longer, longer, that is not there. You're not going to see the sugar high of fiscal push or enhanced, un, enhanced unemployment benefits. So as supply dynamics uh, readjust, 
we do think that the demand side of this equation is also going to be tempered. And that's why we think we're going to move into a lower inflation and lower growth uh, sort of environment. Rupita, can you put some numbers on that for next year? Just going through the ECFC function on the Bloomberg for where the median is right now, the survey that we conduct for economists going forward, 22 real GDP at about 4%, CPI 3.3%. This is for 22 for next year, four and three. What are you looking for? If you look at our forecast, and we are sub 3% on a Q4, Q4 basis, uh, you know, closer to 3.5% on a, a calendar average basis. And on CPI inflation, we are still seeing higher readings. And that is a function of, you know, how we expect the goods and service sector, how that adjustment is going to happen, especially as you see normalization of the service sector, uh, OER, that is a large component. So I do think that we're going to see a lift from that. And the good side, there's so much uncertainty from the supply chain side that, you know, it's, it's really difficult to time how uh, or when that is going to happen. But we do expect to see elevated readings. But by the second half of the year, growth is going to be, in our assessment, uh, closer to 2.5%. And inflation readings are also going to uh, ease quite substantially, closer to 2%. So, Ravila, on those supply chain problems, that's not something that monetary policymakers are easily equipped to address, but obviously the inflation caused by it is causing central banks to get pretty uncomfortable. We're seeing that at the BOE, as John said, you have Russia hiking as well in the face of inflation at a five-year high. Do we run the risk of when those bottlenecks ease, we end up with policy that is too tight? Well, that is exactly you know what we have been talking about, is that this is the supply dynamic that uh, you know any action from the Fed is really not uh, equipped to address. So if you are looking at the expectation that demand is going to be so strong that it elicits a Fed response, we don't really subscribe to that view. So I guess there is, there is a chance uh, that you, know, you do see uh, a response from the Fed that you know, tamps down the economy uh, you know, in, a, in a more substantial way than is needed. But I do think that all this is centered around what the Fed is communicating right now. And what they're communicating is that if inflation does turn out to be, you know, uh, substantially stickier, that they are ready to respond. But I think it's a matter of managing expectations rather than them saying that, you know, we are not, we are just going to sit back and, and you know, let this happen. Mm-hmm. The inflation expectations are rising and what they need to do is manage those expectations. And this is the communication process. What yeah. they're saying is that they're not going to, uh, they're not going to let this occur at a rate, you know, that we're seeing right now. Well, it's a good point on inflation expectations. And that brings me to a question on the consumer, because obviously we're in the thick of earnings season. We're talking a lot about supply chain issues and companies raising costs because of their higher input costs. Our colleague at Bloomberg Opinion, Andrea Felsted, put out a column on the terminal talking about the likes of Unilever. And yes, price hikes are working for them for now. But if they hike further, there may be a point in time where consumers are not going to be tolerant of them. What is your take on that? Yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, I do think that the expectation that uh, these price increases are going to continue forever, I do think that uh, that is, uh, I'm not sure that that's really realistic. At some point, either the consumer steps back or, you know, you have to adjust your expectations about, uh, you know, wage increases or uh, the response from uh, just in terms of how the consumer responds to, uh, you know, persistently high uh, or, or accelerating inflation. So I do think that there will be pushback at some point. I do think that these companies that are able to pass through, the consumer is, the household balance sheet is very healthy right now. So the consumer is able to 
bear a little bit of this price pressure. But there, I, I do think that there is a limit to this and uh, in terms of, you know, how successful companies will be in passing on price increases. Rabila, thank you, as always. Rabila Faruqi there of thank High you. Frequency Economics. John, what we can suggest is some girls would like to talk to us, and that would be Liz Ann Saunders, hardcore Stones fan, joins us, writing it up. I'll never be your beast of burden. My back is broad, but it's a hurting. Liz Ann Saunders, you are writing on the equity markets about the beasts of burden that are out there. Which one has your attention? Well, I think there are some signs that some pressures might be easing, even though durable goods prices are still up. There's some signs that durable goods consumption is rolling over a little bit, but a little bit of rolling over in supplier delivery times. But to John's point, just before I came on, it really depends on, on what good or service you're talking about as to the time frame associated when we get some balance back between demand and supply. But the, the one benefit to high prices is it, it, it's actually easing some of the, the demand pressures. Mm-hmm. And the hope is that that force predates the Fed's uh, need to step in more aggressively. You will be overwhelmed at Charles Schwab in the coming days with what do we do at a record standard of poor's 500 high? What do you advise? I think... I think rotational uh, leadership shifts, even some rotational corrections, which have characterized much of this year, are likely to persist. But there's enough offsets when you go through these pockets of weakness that the net is it keeps the index level declines to uh, a fairly benign degree, as we saw more recently when we had the 5.2% drop in the S&P. You still have 91% of the S&P that has had at least a 10% drawdown this year, and the average drawdown is 18%. And I think that type of environment is likely to persist. That's a pretty benign way to ease, whether it's sentiment excesses, technical Mm -hmm. excesses, valuation excesses. And I think if you do more sort of volatility-based rebalancing, as opposed to trying to do short-term market timing, that helps investors stay in gear in this kind of market. Well, speaking of volatility, Lizanne, the VIX is sub-15. We're looking at a 1493 this morning. Can volatility stay this subdued into year end? Yes, I think a measure like the VIX can stay fairly subdued, but that doesn't mean you're not going to continue to see some of these underlying leadership shifts and some of the the swaps that are happening, um, even on a day-to-day basis, where, uh, you know, you'll see energy at the top of the leaderboard for a day or two and tech at the bottom, and then you see a complete reversal of that. And I think those shifts are keying off these days, uh, to a great degree, the bond market and what uh, what ten-year yields are doing. For a while there, they mm-hmm. were those leadership shifts were keying off the Delta variant. Um, that seems to be less of a force now, and let's hope that stays in the rearview mirror. Well, the bond market, as John was just talking about, is pricing in a much higher rate of inflation over the next five years, with three percent on the five-year break-even. I was reading your note from a couple of days ago, and you said that there's a shift from pro-cyclical to counter-cyclical inflation. Counter-cyclical meaning high prices drag on economic activity. So we're talking more inflation, growth getting hit. Can you differentiate between that and stagflation? Well, stagflation, if you use the precise definition tied to what was going on in the 70s, it wasn't just weak economic growth and higher inflation. It was high and rising unemployment 
and to some degree weak productivity. And we clearly don't have those latter two uh, factors. So whether we come up with some catchy new phrase for just a slowing growth environment, I think this is more of a shift from pro-cyclical inflation, which is what we had at the beginning Mm -hmm. of the reopening. Higher demand pushed up prices. Now we've got high prices pushing down demand and economic uh, growth. I think that's a better way to think about the current environment than likening it to the 70s. Lizanne Saunders, what is the new definition of the debate of pricing power? We've seen eras of discussion of pricing powers among our American corporations. What's new this time? Well, I don't think we have yet kicked in the the psychological component that feeds into the wage price spiral that we saw in the 1970s. And that's a bit more esoteric. It's not as easy to measure. There's no numerics associated with it. But it's when that psychology kicks in, when workers, the psyche changes, they feel they have the power to demand not just one time higher compensation, but on a persistent basis, the power that companies feel they have when the psyche changes to persistently pass on higher costs. I I don't think we're there yet, but it's also why I think the margin story and the outlooks associated with that as we go through third quarter reporting season are maybe even more important than what the numbers are being reported for the quarter. Now we're going to go inside baseball here and we can do this with the wonderful Lizanne Saunders. Lizanne, I plotted today the value line arithmetic index minus the value line geometric index, which is one indication of the consolidation, the concentration of a given broader American stock market. The slope is absolutely original. Give us an update on the dominance of profitable cash flow big tech. So I think profitability, rising earnings revisions as a factor is going to be increasingly important, especially if we if, if this environment of weakening growth courtesy of higher inflation is less transitory than what was thought to be the case. I think focusing on those factors that sort of separate you from the masses and the beauty of of some of those factors, especially rising earnings revisions, forward-looking higher profitability, is it's almost a hybrid growth and value factor. Because, of course, if you've got those rising earnings revisions, you've got a rising denominator, which means falling multiples. And in addition to the volatility-based rebalancing that we already talked about, I think a factor-based approach makes more sense in this environment than trying to make sector calls. And I think taking advantage of weaker growth and what that means for companies that do have that sustainable growth trajectory looking forward is probably the best way to approach the market, especially if you're a stock picker. Hey, Lizanne, always great to catch up with you. Thanks for so much of your time this morning. Lizanne Saunders there of Charles Schwab. Right now, Kaylee Lines and I would like to manage the message on your next air travel over to Helene Becker to say she's senior research at, uh, analyst at Cowan with Kaivon Rumor. It barely defines the ownership of Cowan with airline securities analysis excellence going back decades and decades. Helene Becker, I know you're going to tell me you've never seen it like this before. What will our industry look like in 12 months? I think it's going to be a lot better than it is now. We're still in that transition phase. 
um, which we expected would last. I actually thought it would last three to five years and um, for for domestic recovery. Of course, I wasn't counting on the government giving people a lot of money. Um, and I think the stimulus has obviously helped travel. Um, usually, you, if you have time, you don't have money. And if you have money, you don't have time. So it's been over the past, I would say, six or nine months, we've seen a huge recovery in domestic air travel. Right. And we expect that to continue. Um, business travel should come back in in 2022, not all the way. Yeah. We're thinking 80, 90 percent of the way, which you you know we've talked about. Right. And, and and international next summer should be a pretty good international Um you know, people will well, want to will take those trips. Tell me about the price discrimination, the idea of selling the cheapest seat and then 47 slices up it up to a full price first class ticket. I look at the ratio of business class to economy and it's outrageously skewed, obviously, because of COVID and all that. Are we going back to the normal price discrimination per seat of pre-pandemic or is there a new new to all this? No, I think I don't. You know, I don't know how to answer the question other than to say that I think um, people don't like to be squished in the back of the planes. And what the airlines are seeing is more, more leisure travelers actually buying up to, if not first class, to premium economy or whatever they call this first, maybe five or seven rows um, to get just a little more leg room. And, you know, you've heard about all the unruly passengers on board. I think part of it is just the squishiness, the the wearing of the masks, the whole uncomfort level. I, I don't think that's going to change. Um, we, we didn't talk about oil prices yet this morning, but yeah. oil prices are up 60% right. year over year. Right. So at some point, capacity has to come down or airlines have to raise ticket prices. And I think ticket prices are going up. Well, that I'm so glad you brought that up, Helene, because we heard the likes of Delta warning about that, for example, saying oil prices are going to weigh and we might not actually be profitable in the last quarter of the year. Why is it that airlines can't exercise enough pricing power to offset that cost? Yeah. So the, the issue for airlines is they sell 60% of their tickets within 90 days of travel. So generally you enter the first of the month having sold at almost two thirds of your seats. So the price that you've set, it was using a fuel price that was established two or three months ago. So you're, you're looking at the forward curve and you're trying to figure out what the price is gonna look like when the person takes the trip. We don't do fuel surcharges for domestic trips in the United States, mm -hmm. only international. So there's that mismatch. You have to work through that group of tickets. And then within the month, you can address it. So it takes a couple of months. We figure the regressions we've done show anywhere from two to four months. I know Delta said up to six months to get price. United said the other day, we will raise ticket prices. Mm -hmm. They just have to, because I heard your segment with Lizanne and um, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that she was talking about was wage inflation. Well, the yeah. airlines are experiencing too, especially for entry-level jobs and in yeah. markets where they're competing with people like Amazon or Facebook or Yahoo or Microsoft. You're seeing huge wage inflation even at the corporate level, not just in entry-level jobs. You're seeing that in retention. So yeah. you know, we're, we're looking at margin pressure over the next six or nine months. And you know, the only thing they can do is raise ticket prices, which will which will tamp down demand. 
Helene, it's like you're reading my mind because I was going to go to labor <laughs> next, not so much because of the wage inflation part of the conversation, but just getting people to fly your planes to be flight attendants within the planes, given a lot of the trouble that Southwest, for example, has had with its vaccine mandate. How do you handicap that kind of issue when you're thinking fundamentally about these airlines? Yeah, so I'm not going to get into the whole vaccine thing. I mean, United had a lot of success working with their employees and getting the vaccine mandate, everybody's done. It's, you know, it's just got to be done from a safety perspective, right? That's like the number one thing airlines talk about all the time. We want to be safe. So that's the first thing. Um, flight attendants, I, I kind of think that it's not a hard job to fill. Delta had 35,000 applications for 1,500 spots and United had 20,000 for mm. 2,000. So that's not the problem, even with So maybe all more those- so pilots. Yeah, pilots are a problem for sure. Mechanics, nobody ever talks about the fact that we're not turning out enough mechanics to keep the planes in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's an issue for for airlines over the next few years. Pilots, United said they hired a thousand. They were going to hire ten thousand pilots this decade. American and Delta are not far behind. I mean, we we've estimated that in order to replace the pilots retiring, and to handle the growth they've talked about in, say, 2023 and beyond, we're, we need 35,000 to 40,000 pilots. So that's going to be an amazing career. Um, mm-hmm. And there are academies that you can go that will help you financially and that will wash you out if you don't have the skill set early so you don't wind up going mm-hmm. through the process of knowing lots of money. Um, really, the issue for labor is going to be in the areas of uh, entry level, like airport staffing, mm-hmm. the contractors, the airlines use it, the catering, wheelchair runners, um, baggage handling. That's really where you're having a All hard right. time finding people to come back. Helene, we got to leave it there. I got 18 more questions. We'll do it again soon. <laughs> Helene Becker, we'll do it again. Colin, their legendary on the airline biz. You know, Kaylee, all of our audiences really care about this stuff. We've all got our anecdotes. I just want to say, in all the travel I've done through this horrific pandemic, I've seen service, Kaylee, like I've never seen. Have there been failures? Yeah. But all in all, it's been stunning. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.